Good morning. I'm uh, Pastor Josh Casey. Uh, I am the North Campus Pastor here at Parkview Church. Uh, it is such a, a joy to be part of a uh, one church in three locations. Um, yeah, uh, just as kind of report, uh, uh, the, uh, the thing that we see a lot uh, up at the North Campus uh, is, uh, is the Vision 2020 uh, taking place. Uh, I know that that was, I kind of came to Parkview and the knowledge of Parkview while this Vision 2020 conversation was happening. And, uh, oh man, it is such a joy to see that this kind of North Campus becoming an outpost of the gospel uh, in Johnson County and, and being kind of at, at the front, uh, front lines of that. Um, and the gospel is, is moving and, and the kingdom is being built there in, in that neighborhood in our city. And it is so Wonderful, and so we are so grateful for the uh, the support and the love that we get. Uh, the campus family is is just wonderful up there, and uh, and for me, it is just a great joy to have the opportunity to come here and worship alongside the other parts of our campus or of our uh, church family. So uh, it's been wonderful worshiping with you guys today. So I am very excited to jump into this. Um, if you don't know me, uh, I get pretty excitable. So I am very excited about this uh, sermon and this text. We will be in Amos 9. Um, so there are some slides that will be up. Uh, those are slides when we go outside of the book of Amos um, or outside of the, uh, the chapter 9 of, of Amos. But otherwise, uh, it would be really beneficial to get into uh, the Bible and look at Amos 9. I'll be, uh, I'll be flying through this. Um, kind of the, the, the anchor in the race here, I don't know. I feel like the race was already won, so I just get like the victory lap here. The guys before me did a nice job preaching the gospel through Amos. But I'll do a little bit of a flyover, uh, kind of wrapping up our series in Amos, but really want to do that with the text we have here before us. Uh, one of the things that I believe a lot is that, uh, is that our worship is something that is created by us. Now, you know, God is the reason of that. Christ is the reason of that. But the things we do, we have to admit that the walls that we've made, that the set, that the, the, the video, that everything that we're doing, that's something that we've created as an expression of our worship. But it doesn't just stop there. It also informs our worship. The way that we worship is also informing us as well. So I think that it's, it, it does us well to do things like hold a Bible. It's heavy. It's weighty. It reminds us of the heavy, weighty word of God. Uh, there's something else that I like to do is to, uh, to practice reverence. A simple action that we practice reverence. So I'll do that now is uh, if you are physically uh, able to, I'd ask that you stand out of reverence for God's word as he has revealed himself to us in Amos 9. I'll start actually, uh, our text is in 11, uh, starts in 11, but I will start reading in verse 8 as you follow along. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who says disaster shall not overtake or even meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and, that, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild that ruined, uh, that ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. 
I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And because we are thankful for the word God gives us, we say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So have you ever had an experience that transformed your view of something? Maybe it was a sudden realization that you're late and that changed 15 minutes of leisure into 15-minute gauntlet of traffic and anxiety. The same 15 minutes has changed. A history of, no, of knowing and being known uh, in, in, in a location has maybe shifted that idea of home from one city to the next city. Location is the same, but you understand it differently. A relationship-defining conversation, maybe it's a heartbreaking disagreement, a wonderful reconciliation or a storybook engagement. The relationship is still there, but it's different. Maybe it's a new job that gave promise to a new role, a new identity on a new team with a new purpose. You see, these are just a few examples of experiences that transform our view of what was there before. Now, we as Christians, we have this opportunity, we have this joy that we get to know and celebrate and be changed by an event that happened, a real, all-encompassing, reality-changing event that happened centuries ago. Now, this event was a person. It was the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ changes everything. I want to go back to this because it's, it's here in this text. We've been in Amos for, uh, for what is it, six weeks. Uh, and, and, and now we get this, this point where there's a, a strange, unexpected turn. I'm going to read verse 8 and then compare it to verse 11. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Verse 11, and in that day, this is still the same thought, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and here are the things he'll do. I will repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins. I will rebuild it as in the days of old. So much destruction on one side and so much rebuilding on the other side. Something changes how, the God, how God is working with his people and in his creation. And what is it that changes it? It's verse 11, that first line. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David. You see, I'm a visual learner. Uh, so if you're a visual learner, uh, you're welcome. Uh, here is a picture for you of, um, of a visual of how prophecy in the Old Testament works. And so we have, uh, we have the prophet who uh, has his uh, ancient Near Eastern megaphone of prophecy, and he screams into that thing. Um, that's a bit anachronistic, so sorry. Uh, so he's screaming, uh, and, uh, and we have these three horizons. Uh, uh, author, scholar Christopher Wright speaks of prophecy as three horizons that we see. That there is an immediate fulfillment in the Old Testament in, in prophecy that we read. There is an eventual fulfillment in the New Testament, and there is an ultimate fulfillment uh, beyond the church age to the end time. What we read here when we read about this booth of David has fulfillment in these three areas. And it's, and it's good for us to know that the fulfillment happens and it is the change of God's dealing with his people. There would be, uh, so when we read this, we can read that there is an immediate Old Testament repair of the booth or the tent or the tabernacle of Yahweh. You see that term, that the booth, tent, tabernacle, those are all kind of the same. We find that there is an eventual 
raising up of this booth tent tabernacle. In John 1, 14, Jesus says something. He says, I, uh, it says that, 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 that the Spirit, the Lord, uh, the, the Word will become incarnate, will put on flesh, literally saying it will tabernacle with us. In John, we, we read this idea that the tabernacle, the tent, the booth that is in the Old Testament, the presence of God with his people becomes Jesus Christ. And he becomes that booth, that tent, that tabernacle. We hear Jesus then uh, a couple chapters later say, tear down this temple and the eventual fulfillment and I will raise it back up. But we don't stop there because that's glorious. That's wonderful. But we don't stop there because we know that Christ happened. If we have faith, we know that their Christ is ours. But that's not the ultimate fulfillment that we see Amos speaking of. There's this ultimate fulfillment when the holy garden temple of God, where God and man will once again dwell, comes down, is renewed, and we are there forever. We're going to see that at the end of Amos. And we'll plant them in a place that will never go away. So we see this wonderful fulfillment. And what is the hinge point of God's dealing with his people? Jesus Christ, that raised up fallen tent, that booth of David. And so that's the point that I want to make today, is that Christ changes everything. And he's going to do something for us then. Christ changes three things for us. If you're into outlines, here's kind of an outline. Uh, so the first thing that Christ changes is our concept of time. He rightly places us in the present by teaching us and, and helping us understand his saving works in the past and his future anticipation of the building of the kingdom, the realization of the kingdom. He places us today. He changes our, um, he changes our, uh, our purposes. And he does that by also changing our place. He changes how we view our city, but not simply the city and the place around us. He helps us to explore the place inside of us, in our hearts and so by changing our time, our place transforms our purpose so that the whole message of Amos is we're not just people who worship randomly about random things. We have content. We are a people here and now. And that worship must, if it is to be real, true, full worship, must also be an act of mission. We have to be in our city executing justice in this world around us or our worship is something vain and vacuous. And if we just go out into the city around us and try to do a whole bunch of justice without actually knowing Christ and worshiping him and doing it for his cause, we're doing social justice with just something very, very different than what the Christian mission is. And so what I'm hoping is that we come away from here seeing and hearing and knowing that Amos is binding all of, all of our worship and our mission together in Christ. So let's go there. First point, Amos helps us to see how Christ resets our theological clocks. There's recreated time, and it teaches us to number our days. There's a, a, a professor that, that speaks a lot to, um, to worship. He, uh, he develops this idea of worship as this, this point in time that is framed up by the past and the future. Robert Weber says this, Worship remembers the past, yes, but it always connects the past with the future. God acts in history in order to restore his kingdom. Worship makes this connection between past and present because worship celebrates God's saving deeds in the past that culminate in the future. I'm going to boil that down. That was a lot. It says we're shaped by the past and we need to know what our past is rightly. But we're also shaped by our future. It aims our trajectory of what we are to do. And when we look in the past, we see God as a saving God. We look to the future 
Our God is a kingdom-building God, and that idea will place us right where we need to be today, proclaiming the kingdom that we have a king who saves. Amos does this. In chapter 2, verse 10, we read, The Lord says, Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness. I'm a God who saved you. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says again, Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. I am a saving God. And now we get to chapter 9 where we were. We started today in chapter 9, verse 8. If we read one verse ahead of that, chapter, or verse 7, we read, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? I am a saving God. You know, it's interesting in the context of that. He's saying, but aren't you like the Cushites? Aren't you like the Philistines? Aren't you like all the other nations that I sovereignly guide? What makes you my segala? What makes you my treasured possession? It's not that I sovereignly guide you, he's saying, because I sovereignly guide everyone. That's just what I do. He says, you are my special people for two reasons. One, chapter 3, verse 2, he says, you only have I known from all the families of the earth. Everybody else is divinely moved by me. My guidance is on everything, but I know you. And he says one more thing here. He says, are you not like the Cushites or the Philistines or the Syrians? But he qualifies this in verse 7 here. He says, but I did something with you. I saved you. I saved you from Egypt. The people of God are God's special people because they are known by God and they are saved by God. They are known by God and saved by God, not just so that can be a fact and we say glory to God. This is the message of Amos. It's so that they do something with that. It's so that they go somewhere with that. So as we, we do well to remember who we are by first remembering God's saving work to his people. We are a saved people. But as Weber says, worship also anticipates God's future vision of the kingdom. See, in, in Amos, he speaks of the future. He uses this term called that day, the day of the Lord. Uh, behold, the days are coming. These are, these are words that are used here. There are nine times that this idea shows up in the book of Amos. Seven of those happen before our text today. Seven of those describe this future day and it has the purpose of a stern warning to turn Israel from the dark and severe punishment. That day is coming, so watch out. You don't do your homework, so watch out. The bad grades are coming. You don't turn in your faith. Watch out. This judgment is coming. And I guess a quick lesson we can learn from the Israelites, they don't turn, so learn from them. Turn, it doesn't go well. However, those are only the first seven times. There are two more times that that day is mentioned. And they're mentioned here in the text today, after Christ. Verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair, and raise up, and rebuild. In that day, something changes. Skip ahead to verse 13. Behold, the days are coming when, and I'll summarize, when abundance shall once again uh, be evidence 
of the covenant faithfulness of my people. Now, he's, he's talking here. I mean, he's talking about this, this weird language, the plowman and the reaper and the treader, and they're all just like, what, they're overtaking these people. What he's saying is, the ground is producing so much food that you can't grow it fast enough to harvest it, fast enough to plant it, fast enough to plow it, fast enough. Like, there's just so much productivity that that abundance is beyond what we can do. It evidences God's faithfulness to a faithful people. But what is that change? That change that happens on the same day there's destruction, there's this productivity. Christ, those who are faithful to that risen booth of David, that is the difference. Those who remember our theological past, that we are saved people, those who understand that we are building not our kingdom, but his kingdom, we rightly be faithful today. And those faithful people will see abundance of God. So Weber is right when he says worship remembers our past, but it also connects it with the future. God acts in history in order to restore his kingdom. Now, they're, they're, the author of, um, the human author of the Exodus story is Moses. I mean, he led people through it. The Spirit inspired him to write of that. He also wrote a psalm that talks about this. He understood that idea of we're going to the promised land. We're coming from salvation. What do we do in the wilderness desert of this life? And he asked this question of God. It's a praise, it's a song, it's worshipful, it's a request of God. In Psalm 90, verse 12, he asked this question. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Christ transforms our understanding of time so that we will number our days today. We pray the Lord's Prayer often as Christians. And I just... I know we're on the same page here, but just so that we actually are. The Lord's Prayer is more of a declaration of alignment to God's will. It's a whole bunch of reasons why we align to God's will. It's not actually a pattern for just a whole bunch of requests. We are aligning to God's will when we read through and we pray the Lord's Prayer. And so when we read through and pray the Lord's Prayer, one of those things we're aligning to is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's going to do his will. We're just asking that we be okay with that. I'm aligned with the fact that I want your will to be done. And so maybe as we are numbering our days as people in the present, understanding the past and looking to the future, a question that I'll challenge you with today. Ask yourself this. How does my calendar reflect your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I mean, you just pull it out. I'm convicted on this. Uh, this week may be set. You may have all your meetings. You may have all your, your kids' activities. You may have all those things. A convicting question. Is this advancing the will of God here? If I'm called to my neighbor, is that budgeted in there just to be there? Maybe this week's set. Maybe grab those spots before they get scheduled in the next week or two. Put in a time to just be at home and go talk to a neighbor. I mean, that is a small step towards that. I think there are ways that we can schedule our future use of time so that we can advance the kingdom today. But it's not simply the future use of our time that Christ is transforming. He's also transforming our past events, our past experiences here. There are many of you here, and I don't know every single one of you, but I do know something because we're all humans, and uh, we've all had experiences. Something brought us here today. Something brought us to, to God, to, to an interest in God. We've all gone through different seasons uh, in life. We've all gone through different things, whether they're, they're horrible, 
whether they're, whether, they're, whether, they're, whether they're so crushing, whether they're so uplifting, whether they're short, whether they're long seasons, whether it's with health, with, with mental uh, illness, with whatever it is, whether it's relationships. We've all gone through things like that. The thing, one thing, simple thing that we can give to each other is stories of faithfulness in each one of those seasons. And there are so many of you I see out there that have kids that are older than my kids. My kids are super tiny. Uh, not that tiny, they're like this tall. Uh, I need to hear the wisdom of the saints who have raised children. I know there are many of you that are saying, amen, I have no idea. Is this going to always be like this? No sleep, all coffee? Something else happens in child rearing, I'm sure. We'll get there. What, how do you go through the teen years? How do you weather through a, a, a relationship breaking? How do you weather through divorce or death or cancer? How do you go through these things together? We can give that to each other. We can give that to the world. That is how we can number our days. What is done in the past that can bring blessing to one another today? We're not islands walking around with our own stories. We're all interconnected. We are God's people. Let's share our lives with each other, but we're going to have to schedule time for it. In Amos, we see a remembering of God's saving deeds and an anticipation of God's future vision of the kingdom. Right at the center of this is Christ, the raised booth of David. The Christ changes our perspective of time. Christ also changes our perspective of place. You see, in Amos, what we see in a survey, but especially here in our text today, is that Amos helps us to see how Christ re-envisions our landscape. And that recreated place teaches us to examine our own hearts. So one thing that happens in prophecy, uh, in Amos, in the gospel, basically in the whole Bible, is this idea, this invitation to a theological vision of our city, to see our city as God sees it. I mean, we look in the book of Amos, uh, Amos 1 and 2. There's a theological thing happening here. There's a principle happening. In Amos 1 and 2, it goes something like this. Woe to you, that nation, I'll deal with you. That nation, I'll deal with you. That nation, I'll deal with you. And he goes all the way around. If we look on a map, which we should when we read the Bible, we're crossing out everybody around there. And all that's left after all these short little woes and punishments is in it's like, and woe to you, Israel, right in the middle of my crosshairs. I think Pastor Doug developed this really well at the beginning of the series here at Central Campus. I'm going to deal with you. That's the point. You are my special people, and I'm going to deal with you. And then we set up all of Amos. So we see that he's saying, but what, what did you do wrong? You just thought that my justice was for you. You haven't spread it to the nations around you. And so they're going to be punished. But you were supposed to be a people on mission, and you didn't do it. So buckle up. We got woes and judgments. He does that. But okay, we, we zip ahead to Amos 5. We get another kind of geography. We get a, a cityscape of sorts. This isn't a comprehensive list. Uh, this, is, this is maybe some of the features you might find if you, if you kind of just thumb through uh, or, or, or um, just look through there uh, in Amos 5. You see uh, speaking of strongholds. You see speaking of uh, cities, of houses, of vineyards, and some other features. What's interesting is, is he, he, he says these are all the things that are part of your city. So he's inviting us. He's not just describing it. He's inviting us to think of our city, the features in our city. But he doesn't stop there and say, we got to go out in our city. He says, there's something about these that are changing you. You've created something that's now creating you. 
and he gives them meaning. I mean, really read this. He does this. He says, these things have a symbolic idolatry to what you think of yourself and what you don't think of God. He says something like this. You sit in your houses, and he likens them to houses of comfort. So your comfort is what I'm calling out. Within your cities of decadence, uh, crediting your strongholds of self-confidence, supposing that life is whole and complete, supposing that your life is evidence that you're good with God. I look around my suburban house and my suburban home and my suburban neighbors, and our lawns look great, so we must have arrived at Shalom. We do that. We laugh, and it's uncomfortable. I live in suburbia, and we do it all the time. I worship my lawn, and I've asked my people to call me out on that. You don't need to mow this week, Josh, or this minute, because it's like an hourly thing for me. He says, as we look around and we see this idolatry, we see something else. We see that you're just interested in yourself. Because when we look at the place that we need to be judged, at the gate of the city, we're going to see the poor and the needy there. That's the place where the poor and the needy come for help, for answers. And I want to be clear that the poor and the needy are not just the poor and needy who need like physical things, money, food, and housing. The poor and the needy are everywhere. The poor and the needy of truth, those without faith. The poor and the needy who are lonely, who don't have relationship. Isn't it amazing that the poor and the needy need truth and need love? And that's exactly what Christ provides. And he says, why are the needy turned aside and the poor trampled? Because in chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, my summary is, you're more concerned with getting back to work and building up your kingdom than you are with the slow, inconvenient work of building up the Lord's kingdom. Hmm. Christ re-envisions our landscape. And as he's looking into our hearts, he kind of speaks of it almost as, a justice dam. Maybe that's helpful. That we're damming up justice within our hearts. You see, our worship, which the Israelites are kind of doing, but not really, is this worship of saying justice is great because, I mean, we have crosses all over the place in here. We, we, because the cross is wonderful. On the cross, Christ, or God's justice, his wrath was poured out. It was satisfied in Christ, and I can worship him rightly, and it's for me. This justice is amazing. I am declared righteous because of his justice satisfied in Christ. And this is our worship. And this isn't bad. We just sang a song, Death Was Arrested. What a beautiful song. What a true song. And I'm sure we sang it rightly. But he says, but that's not it. You're damning that up when you just come to church and you sing those songs and you think they're for you and you just stop there. And then you go back to work. And then you do your things. And then you come back and fill up your God bucket. And you damn it up. The poor and the needy are at the floodgates, he says. The poor and the needy aren't only those lacking physical resources. They need your truth. They need your love. Amos envisions a city thirsty for righteousness of God, but God's people have damned up the Lord's justice. Amos 5, 24. And he says, open the gates, let justice roll down like the waters. Let justice roll like an ever-flowing stream. Take that gospel of Christ, that justice has been satisfied. Take that to the people in the city around you. That is connecting your worship with your mission. 
That is what Israel is not doing. So, view your heart as a justice dam when you look inside at your cityscape of your heart, but also go out into the real cityscape of your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, and view those as the kingdom of God, and here's how Jesus describes it, as the kingdom of God in your midst. Let's look at how this plays out, because he gives us some instructive here in verses 14 and 15. The first line of verse 14, the Lord says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And then he says some other things, and he gets to, we'll get to, uh, but then he goes to verse 15, uh, the first line there, he says, and I will plant them on the land that they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them there. In verse 15, he gives us that ultimate fulfillment. We're going to be planted in that garden, that one day, that, that eventual thing, and we will never be uprooted again. We have a security in Christ, that we will be there if we have faith. And then he says, where are we at right now? He says, I will restore the fortunes of my people. Now Christ will bring you back. He will build you up. He will give you treasure. You will become a treasured possession again. You will sell everything you want and go for that treasured land. He says, I will build that up. So if we know that there's Christ and then we're looking toward that end time, what do we do in the middle? What do we do in the in-between time? That's today. He gives us the verses in between those, the rest of, the rest of chapter, or verse 14 to describe what we will do. Let's read that again. I will restore. The Lord will restore the fortunes of my people, and I will do it through them. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I mean, it's the story of the guy who's, in a co or who's on his house, and, 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 everything's, and, and, the, and the floodwaters are coming up. And he prays to God, oh, save me. And then, and then the canoe comes by. And he says, oh, pray, uh, God, please save me. And then, you know, a boat comes by. And he says, oh, God, save me. And God says, I'm sending all kinds of stuff. Do something more than pray. We pray for revival of our city. I believe that what verses 14 and 15 are calling us to is to lean into the work of God reviving Johnson County and get out there and go do something. Meet with someone in, in, in a coffee shop. Meet with someone in their home. Invite people over to eat, even if only to listen to their story. I don't know how many times I have spent an hour talking to someone and I think, where did that go? Two months later, we got a crisis. We got love. Now we've got a bridge for truth. Mm. That is how the kingdom is built. That is how revival happens, not just through prayer. He moves us, and he's moving the people here. I will restore their fortunes, and I will do it through their activity, through their faithfulness. So Parkview, just to be very clear, get out and do it. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel at work, restoring our hearts and reviving our city. Now here's the third point as we're closing in. Amos helps us to understand time. Amos helps us to understand our place, but all of that is fashioned for our purpose as worshipers and as missionaries. A recreated purpose teaches us to live, here it is, faithfully. Our worship and our mission is all grounded in our faithfulness. We see in, uh, in Amos 9, everything comes to a head. All these warnings come to a head and Israel is not changing. Amos 9, we see, this is almost these two gods here. Uh, uh, at the beginning of Amos 9, the Lord stands at the altar and he executes judgment. But then here in uh, chapter, or in, in verses 11 through 15, the Lord rebuilds the remnant. Now, I gotta be honest. I just asked myself this question as I'm, as I'm reading this. And I ask myself this a lot of times. 
Like, what's going on with God here? Like, is he, is it just two different gods? I mean, he's super angry, and he's super rewarding. Like, this doesn't seem the same. Maybe he's the same God. I feel like that's worse. Like, our, our, our blessings and cursings as Christians depend on what side of the bed, divine bed, you know, that God wakes up on, and he's just angry at us, so he, so he curses us. What's happening here? I think this is a real problem that people have, a God of wrath and a God of love. They can't be the same. I, I'd suggest that maybe it's not that God is the wavering one. Maybe that God is holy and consistent with himself, unchanging, loving, and just, and he's all of those things at all times, but he gives us warnings conditionally. He gives Israel a chance to turn. He gives us a chance to turn. My justice is on Christ. It's satisfied there so that you may have righteousness so believe. That's the conditional for us now. So believe that you sin and ask him for forgiveness. But if we don't do that, we have the judgment. God is not the wavering one. He lays out truth. He is unwavering. It is us who waver between our faith and our faithlessness. So be faithful. We see him tear down. We see the Lord tear down things at the beginning of chapter 1, or chapter 9, and we see him build up things at the end of chapter 9. If you follow through here, or if you follow through, he says, I will tear down your religion, but I will build up, verse 11, your Savior. I will liquidate your riches, but I will, verse 14, restore the fortune of my people. I will destroy your self-righteous cities, but I will use you, verse 14, to rebuild them for my glory. I will rip out the vineyards filled with dead, complacent faith, but I will give them new vineyards with a new vine from whom they will produce abundant fruit when abiding through faithfulness. I had a, I had a, a youth pastor, uh, just incredible guy. Uh, he had this, this line that he would always use called, he says, Theology informs action. Uh, it's our belief determines our behavior. What we know ultimately will turn into whatever we do. And that's true. The EFCA statement of faith is something that we talk about quite a bit here um, in the last week, in the coming weeks. We're going to be moving toward a vote as members uh, to, uh, to take a look at this. But the EFCA statement of faith binds this together. We look to our doctrine to know what our, our behavior will be. So uh, we have this up on the screen. You can follow along here because it's talking about this future time of Jesus Christ. It's binding together our worship and our mission. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at the time known only to God demands constant expectancy as our blessed hope. And it does, and it motivates the believer, which means it turns this into action. Our worship of Jesus Christ, who will return, is glorious. And it's going to motivate us to action, is what it says. Here are the things it does. It motivates us to godly living, to sacrificial service, and to energetic mission. How about that? What we believe of Jesus Christ motivates us to energetic mission. If you go to an e-free church, this is something we believe. If you are a member at Parkview, this is something we believe. That Jesus Christ motivates our energetic mission. So one of the things, if this is the only thing that you get, this is kind of my big last point here, if this is the only thing you get here, I believe that, that Amos is rallying the saints to connect their worship and their mission. 
Worship and justice to Amos are symbiotic. That is, they need each other to survive, and they need each other to thrive. Worship without mission is what Jesus calls whitewashed tombs. Mission without worship is works righteousness, and if we follow the logic, both manipulate God. In our upcoming series in Genesis that will kick off here in September, we will see that our purpose as faithful people of God is to reflect the image of God. And our God is a sending God who is for the nations. It is our task, as it was back in Genesis, as it was with, uh, with, with Abraham and the Israelites, as it was with Amos and the Israelites, it has always been our job to worship our God and to take that to the world around us. But it's not just Moses, Amos, Jesus that are connecting worship and justice. This was the topic of the first Christian Global Mission Council ever. And the question at the Jerusalem Council was, what are we going to do with all these people who love Jesus now? And I pray that that's like a problem that the elders have very soon at Parkview. What are we going to do with all these people who believe? But at the heart of it, they're asking, what is the mission of the church here? So uh, I'd like to take a look, eavesdrop into the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. You can follow along on the screen here. After they, uh, that is Peter, Paul, and others who are on the front line of missions in the first century, finished speaking, James replied. Now, I believe that James uh, read himself some Amos, a lot of Amos. He knew Amos so well. Uh, so here's, here's something you can do if you don't believe me on this one. Read the book of Amos thoughtfully. That's step one. Read the book of James then, right after that, thoughtfully. And then, the third step, email me, jcasey at parkviewchurch.org, and just write, yeah, I think you're right. Like, it's all you got to do. It's just really good. I'm that confident, and I'm just waiting for your emails. Now, if you disagree, I'll, I'll get back to you soon on those emails at some point. No, I'm joking. Uh, I really believe that, Amos, or that James read Amos a lot. So, Let's get back to this. That was a, that was a huge aside. Uh, Amos reading James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Okay, that's like the whole book of Genesis. And with this, and with this the words of the prophets agree. Now we've got the whole rest of, you know, uh, uh, the Bible there. Uh, just as it is written. Here we go. Listen up. We may have heard this today. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Whoa. That sounds familiar. His conclusion then, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So here's James's argument. I'm going to repackage it. He says, God's people have always been intended to attract and welcome outsiders into their fellowship and faith. And for all of church history, fellowship and faith were the same thing. We separate that sometimes, unfortunately. Welcome them into our fellowship and to our faith. And he says, why stop that now? Rather than spend our energy deciding who's in and who's out and what kind of disciple we want to create, Let's focus on the mission. Let's focus on our purpose. Let's focus on faithfulness 
in everyday life. This is our act of worship. This is our act of mission. And here's what happens. I mean, you can read. Go, go check. You can email me if you agree or disagree. Uh, what happens there after that? They're all done. They're like, hmm, okay. Let's move on to writing this thing up. That sounds like a good decision. Let's send it out to everybody. What was the first scripture to be cited by the Christians to support their energetic mission? Amos 9, 11 through 12. Okay, so maybe it's a pastor nerding out. And I know I'm like trying to hold it back and not nerd out as much, but I am nerding out hardcore inside right now. That's incredible. That's incredible. Amos, a very dark, weighty uh, indictment of God's people. Judgment all over the place. Just appalling things are said in here. This is the book that is the foundation for the Christian movement of energetic mission to get the gospel out. Why? It's because James understood Amos is focusing on holiness. Amos is calling us to be a holy people in our worship and in our mission. And James, and James also knows that this holiness can only ultimately be found in Jesus Christ that raised up Booth of David. Amos is a book about everyday missionary activity to God's people. Some very, very quick application points. Our everyday mission is to remember who we are as we remember God's work of salvation and anticipate his glorious return. And to have that past salvation and that future glory frame up that we get to work today. Also, we are invited to adopt God's vision of our hearts. Ask yourself, where am I poor and needy of truth, of love? Where am I poor and needy of God's forgiveness? We don't ask ourselves that enough. Where have I sinned? We need to adopt God's vision, not only of our hearts, but also of our city. Where, where is there poor and needy searching for truth and love of Christ? Uh, Andrea did a great job uh, uh, promoting this intro to missional living. It's on your bulletin. I know I have one, so you can't get away from it. Uh, uh, next week and the week after that. That sounds like an exact thing. If you're saying, he's talking up here, what do we do? Go do that. Go talk about it. Go figure out what it looks like in your neighborhood around you. And this final point then. We are invited to remember, to see and also to rebuild our integrity as worshipers and missionaries every day in the simple ways right here at home. And that is why we are a people, just as the Israelites were, just as God's people have always been called, to be on mission at home. Let's pray. God, you are a creating God. You are a relational God. You are a sending God. You are, above all, a saving God. We pray that you would forgive us in our waywardness when we turn from what you've called us to. And we ask 
that as we confess our sin to you, that you, you, would, you would restore us. You would give us that freedom to not, not worry whether or not we're in or out, whether or not we have your favor or not. But that we give us the freedom to pursue the mission, to pursue holiness confidently, that we may approach you with confidence and speak confidently about the reality, changing event of Jesus' death and resurrection. We thank you for this gift of your revealed will to us in the book of Amos. We pray that we understand it more, that your spirit would convict us of our guilt, would guide us into truth, and would glorify Christ. Amen.